Sonic States. Uh, hello and welcome to Sonic Talk number 130. Um, has some sort of auspicious number. I can't think of anything funny to say about 130 apart from nothing really. So uh, I'll, I'll skip that. It's live. Uh, we got people in the live chat room. We are recording a bit earlier this week due to uh, me going to see my daughter's school uh, parents' evening thing. I like Sorry. the fact that the world of technology, cutting edge technology, has to take a blip because you've got to go and see your daughter's teacher. Yeah, of course. I think that's. I think that says it all, really, doesn't it? Life at all. You know, the Google network being brought down because somebody forgot to pay the electricity charges. It's it's that kind of thing, isn't it? Well, if only we were a, a fraction of the Google network, I'd be I'd be happy with that statement. But uh, thanks for putting us in the same ballpark. That is, of course, the voice of Dave Robinson. Hello Anna, again. Here, here for a second week on the trot. It's yeah. another it's another double Dave week. How are you, Dave? Double penetration of Dave. Yeah, oh. something like that. <laughs> well, Dave Robinson from ProSoundNewsEurope.com mm. is here. Thanks for joining us. Well, no, I'm, uh, it's, it's, good, it's good to be back so soon. I've got lots that I want to talk inanely about um, <laughs> in, a, in a kind of a, a, a smug and slightly arrogant way. Excellent. Well, I'm looking forward to that, but perhaps we can introduce our other guests first and then we can, uh, then we can, we can get back to you, if that's okay. all right. Well, um, let's, have, let's have Rich Hilton, uh, sort of in the Dave sandwich, uh, Mr. Rich Hilton <laughs> from Connecticut. <laughs> I'm all slathered in mayonnaise. <laughs> oh, please. Special Dave mayonnaise. This is a family well, show. <laughs> Rich Hilton, I'm pleased to have you with us. I know we're recording a little early this week, and I'm very glad you could accommodate us. Thank you very much. Rich Hilton can be found at myspace.com forward slash Hiltonius, where he posts his chic-related photos, working with Nile Rogers on a daily basis. It's true. For it's true. Years now. How's, your massive, how's your massive monitor? It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Uh, it's I'm, I'm envious. I'm very pleased. I am envious. Pleased. Well, Rich, I'm glad you're, glad you're aboard, and uh, oh, let's, let's go to the other side of the Dave sandwich. Um, Dave Spears from g4software.com. Hey! <laughs> hey, where am I on the top or the bottom? Well, on my list of uh, on, on the where on, are you normally, Dave? <laughs> let me put it this way, Dave. At the the way that it's the list of Skype participants has panned out, it's me at the top, followed by you, Dave Spears, then Rich Hilton in the middle, and Dave Robinson at the bottom. Oh, that's perfect. I can move yeah. out. Same so, old place. <laughs> underneath <laughs> the pile. Going on the bottom is quite good for. Um, let's just stop. Just stop it now, okay? Let's just stop Don't right there. And let's move straight into the topics that are going to make up Sonic Talk number 130, which incidentally this week is brought to you by our show sponsors, Roland.co.uk and Loopmasters. Uh, more from them a bit later on. So, um, oh, well, first of all, I really wanted to um, play this um, because. Somebody left a message on the Sonic Talk answer phone, and I want I wanted you to hear it. What was that? Uh, well, it sounded like a laughing gnome in the background pl- trying to l- play the banjo. I mean, all sorts of imagery was conjured up in my head. All I know, it's an 804 area code, which uh, is the state of Virginia and includes the community of Chester, Glen Allen, Hopwell, Mechanicsville, uh, Petersburg, Richmond, Tuckerboat, Ho, and West Point. 
That's all I could say. I have no idea. There was there was no 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 spoken nothing. No, there's nothing. Well, over to over to Rich Hilton for this one for <laughs> for a, 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 a diagnosis on the uh, on the state of the people of Virginia. I'd imagine. <laughs> so. Uh, I, defer, I, I have no, I have no idea what that myself. was. I, I just recuse myself. I just got a message saying um, there's a new message on the Sonic Talk answer line, which in, in, I would like to encourage people right here, right now, to uh, leave message on the answer answer phone of Sonic Talk. It's um, I haven't given the number out for ages, and I can't remember what it is, but I know. That <laughs> <laughs> if you look in the show notes, it'll all be there. <laughs> so I don't know whether this person was a listener or just a totally random prankster, but. Um, <laughs> What can I say? Thank you very much, whoever you are. Somebody so, using Microsoft Songsmith. Maybe so. <laughs> maybe so. <laughs> not using it well enough. No, no. There was no backing track. They turned the backing track down. Mm. First topic. Eurovision. I've got. I've, I've just got to bring it up. I, I don't know who watched it. I don't know whether it will be a person. I know Dave Robinson, you've been a few times. But my experience over this week, I just thought, what an incredible... Um, Production. I mean, it, yeah. massive, massive. I mean, I was thinking, wow, what is it? And I, I really enjoyed it because, I mean, let's face it, it's not the best music in the world for everybody. But uh, I sat down and I, I had my laptop on my lap and I was doing it on Twitter and I had, I had one window searching for Eurovision tags and another, and so I was in a kind of dialogue with all these other people who were watching it on a Saturday night, presumably mm. after the same amount of glasses of wine as I had. <laughs> and it was really good fun and it was it was like a a shared experience because the traditional broadcasting was broadcasting it live and the new media was kind of commentating on it live with a load of random people and i loved and the it twitter, the twitter feed was crazy wasn't it it was kind of a hundred updates every 10 seconds yeah but can i nick can i just ask rich do you have any idea what we're talking about i don't really but i'm <laughs> studying i'm furiously <laughs> surfing right now and i'm looking at a website that sort of describes it to me and it, it looks like some sort of competition it's well, a, yeah, I think Nick. I think you should describe Eurovision for the, uh, for the okay. US audience. Eurovision Song Contest is a Europe-wide, pan-European co- uh, songwriting competition, which sounds all well and good, but it's traditionally sort of brings out the cheesiest and the most sort of common denominational um, type Euro tunes. And basically, it's played uh, over a live event. Uh, people vote on it, uh, and the audience watching it live is about a hundred million. The number of voters, I think, was probably eight or nine million um, this year. And what you do is they all play a song, uh, it has to be three minutes long, and they perform it live, or they sing the vocal live at least, in a massive stadium, and um, it happens every year and has done since 1956. 56, yeah. And famously, ABBA won it in 1974 with Waterloo, and that's how ABBA came to uh, the attention of everybody. I think basically what... Uh. I think basically what's happened there is they've kept it going in the vain hope that another ABBA will come out of it, but have been sadly disappointed. Does anyone want to hear the tune that won? I'm in love. Oh, no, don't spoil it. Here it comes. I'll play it out to the chorus. Ago, when I was younger, I kind of liked a girl I knew. She was mine, and we were sweethearts. That was then, but then it's true. Here it comes. I'm in love with a fairy tale, even though it hurts. 
Jesus. And that, 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 that was quite painful, actually. Uh, it's interesting. That that song actually got something like... Um, it, it broke the record. It broke the record. Points. It had, like, double the, the nearest the nearest person. It's like, 390 points or something, yeah. which doesn't mean much to anybody apart from the fact that the nearest one was about 200 points or 150 or something. But nonetheless... Um, that gives you a flavour of the quality of music. In fact, I suppose that was probably quite a good one. I don't know why that one won. I think there's because there's calculated dissonance in it. <laughs> well, I, I I think it's I think it won on a number of reasons. If I might comment, please do. Yeah. You, well, you've been, haven't you, on several occasions? Well, I have, I've been six times to Eurovision, and I, I've been as a guest of Sennheiser. And it's a fantastic event. It's as camp as Christmas, <laughs> and it is it's just unbelievable. Um, and I'd love to have gone this year, and for circumstances beyond my control, I couldn't go. He won because it was it was a catchy tune. It was horribly catchy. It was boom, chum, boom, chum. It, it kind of it sums up all that kind of songwriting, bouncy. Didn't it was kind of a timeless style to it, but also slightly French actually. I think in its in its structure, it was slightly French in the kind of the chord. I haven't analysed it that, to that degree, but I'll take your but word for it. He's a good-looking, twenty-three-year-old, sort of um, uh, dark-haired. Um, quite sort of uh, fresh-faced Norwegian. One for the the ladies. Alexander Ryback, in fact. Yeah, and all the the women, they're going, and 12 points go to a man I fell in love with. Norway! There was a lot of that going on. I mean, he would have been shagged about 15 times over, at least. (laughs) Just just by the international judges. (laughs) He would have got lucky that night, yeah, that's true. I'd have thought so. You know, you know, good, good luck to him. And it's funny because they were tipping him for the, the he was tipped off as the as the, as the bookmaker's favourite before uh, before the event, and he went on to win. And it was good to to, to see that an actual song that would, that was sold on the strength of the song. Okay, he's a good looking guy, but it was a strong song. It's very catchy, yeah. and it kind of epitomised everything that is Eurovision. And uh, and he went on to win. So good luck to him. And Norway was, I believe, was the first country to have Neil Poir. Uh, back in the seventies, and so for them to actually host it next year, uh, it's good. I mean, it could be on a much smaller scale than the Russian event, and they supposedly spent what thirty million euros on that. Oh, at least. I mean, this is the thing I was looking into. I mean, because um, Estonia won it, um, and they put they put they put twenty six million dollars into staging the event. And you just think, I mean, this is the size, the scale of it, Rich. If you're not familiar with, it, this is the scale we're talking about. It's absolutely. It's kind of like Live Aid every year. Yeah. Wow. It's it's incredible. It's a big deal, and and what um, and again to the kind of the, the American audience, and I don't know whether the European audience know this, but um, the reason why Eurovision was set up originally in the 1950s, Nick, I don't know whether you know this, but it was to show that an event could be broadcast simultaneously to all the European countries at one time without a flaw. And okay. that was, they had a song contest, and so it would broadcast, uh, you know, and it was, uh, it was like 11 p.m. in Russia, so it was 8, 8 p.m. in the U.K. And it was simultaneously transmitted um, across Europe, um, and it was, uh, initially, it was a technical exercise. Oh, I didn't know to that. To show that this, they could do this. They had the technology, and they had the power to do this. And then, I suppose, in 1956, this was a big deal. And, and it's just kind of grown and grown to, to now. It's got... There are too many countries, and that's why they have two semi-finals, and they have a final which has uh, what twenty-five countries. But 
everybody, 42 countries, get the uh, get the broadcast feed along with everybody else who wants to watch it. Um, but the amount but of money it costs to stage is just, you know, I mean, because yeah. they all have to chip in. There's, there's the big four, Germany, Spain, UK and France. They all chip and in Belgium, kind of half. Big five. Big five now, is it? All, yeah. They chip in like but, half the amount of co- money it costs to stage. But this is why you have the EBU. This is why you have the the EBU, the European Broadcasting Union. That's where you have their logo at the beginning because it is their annual exercise in in technical excellence. Uh, Dave, did you watch it? Is you have you got any guilty secrets? Me? No, no, no. <laughs> uh, no, I just I saw some of your Twitter feeds uh, on the following day. It was like. Dude, this guy stayed up and watched it. Interesting, though. <laughs> that song sounded like Cotton Eye Joe on Mogadon, didn't it? Really? Oh, yeah, yeah. That, that's a very, yeah. The Rednecks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very well observed. Well, Rich, I'm imagining that um, you probably do- still doesn't mean anything to you, but have you ever played at any kind of event like this where it's just been so massive? You know, that. Massive event. 100 million, uh, 100 million live viewers. That's got to be pretty scary. No, no I've not done 100 million live viewers. No, um, uh, I was purported to have played in front of a million or three in Europe once uh, when we played in Zagreb, of all places. But regarding, first of all, that song, I was interested in the fact that the violin was a primary melodic instrument in the thing, which right away gives it a certain kind of texture. And then you get this extremely poppy, almost passionless, but accurate vocalist. Um who apparently looks really good to most women. And I don't know. It was cool. It's not a bad song. I will say once again that I have an extraordinary prejudice against judging art according to the standards of sport. And (laughs) we are driven by media to a large extent to do this. Anybody else? Rich, I don't know what happened there. We lost you. We lost you. Okay, I think we had a bit of intermittent audio there. I'm terribly sorry about that. Um, yeah, we did. I'm not sure what went. Everything sort sorry. of went... Oh, we lost Dave. <laughs> I could play some tumbleweed in the meantime. Uh, Dave lost everything. Oh, no. Has he been gambling? Uh-huh. Sonic State 130, the pursuit of excellence. Yes, sorry about that. <laughs> no, what happened? It all, went, it all froze up a little bit. Dave, um, you said lost everything. I thought perhaps you'd uh, you'd you backed put it all red you, and it came in black. Yeah, you, you'd backed you'd backed the UK to win with the terrible <laughs> Andrew Lloyd Webber's uh, monstrosity, <laughs> and you lost your house and the business and everything because they didn't win. Thankfully, it wasn't that terrible. Uh, totally unmemorable, and it had him in Andrew it. Lloyd- yeah. They came fifth. I mean, you give them something. Oh, no, that. absolutely. Fair enough. But, you know, it's a bit of a banker, isn't it, to be perfectly honest? <laughs> something like that. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> well, can I just tell you the big secret? Oh, go on then. Um, everything is redundant. So there's two. There is two of everything. Mm-hmm. And in my experience of going to Eurovision, I, like I say, I've been to Istanbul and Denmark and Estonia and Riga. They have. They have two of everything. So, front of house, there's a guy mixing it, and next to him, there's a guy mixing it, but mixing without a, a live signal, without a, a signal that's actually going out, just in case the desk goes down, and so they can switch over in a, in a fraction of a second to the other desk. Oh, wow. They have two broadcast trucks. They have one that does the main feed to all the the countries that are picking up the signal, but they have a second truck which is doing exactly the same thing that has a shadow um, signal. They have two monitor desks 
they even have two power generators outside the building so that if one of them goes, you know, like electricity substation, if one of them goes down, the other one will, will, will kick in because they cannot fail with this broadcast. And this comes back to my earlier point about being um, the, the, the EBU, the European Broadcast Union, as an example of what they can achieve technically. Everything is so backed up. There's such safety nets that they cannot possibly fail. They run the show by the numbers, uh, you know, a dress rehearsal and a technical rehearsal all rolled into one, and they tape it. Just in case, so they can spin and, it in. And they run the tape alongside the live recording as well. Jesus. So that even if the mics fail and the, and the, the, the live broadcast fail, they have a tape so they can drop the tape in so that nobody knows or nobody is obviously aware that something has gone wrong. Wow. And it is that... Um, and this is why it's such a massive technical exercise for the broadcast people, because everything they do, they have, they have doubled up. Plus, they have, you know, the tape running alongside. And um, Well, that's three. They've got three. They've well, got they've three. Got three. So, and I think in, um, in however many years, in the last 20 years, they've had to drop into the tape once, I think, something like that. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. I'd love to go and see it. I'd be very interested. Anyway, Eurovision Song Contest, uh, you'll have to wait till next year's folks, um, to see it again. But I enjoyed myself, even though, and I'm not ashamed to say so. Not this time. <laughs> when I was a teenager, I used to sit at home on Saturday nights and watch that little television program, the original Doctor Who series. And I used to see these names on the end credits, um, Brian Hodgson, Dick Mills, BBC Radio Phonic Workshop, and then, of course, these guys, Roger Lim, Paddy Kingsland. Peter Howell, and I used to think to myself, that looks like a really fun job to have. <laughs> and later on, I was lucky enough to get my name in those end credits as well. So we're going to take a little trip down memory lane now, and uh, these, is, this is, I suppose, excerpts from our collective showroom. And um, we're going to try and join in and do something live for the first time ever, which will be interesting. So, uh, <laughs> there we have it that was uh, a, a clandestine recording from the roundhouse gig where the uh, surviving members and uh, participants of the radio bbc radiophonic workshop um played right there um it was introduced by a chap called mark ayers um jumped into the uh, doctor the theme from doctor who i couldn't see who was doing what live because it was just a mobile phone video but dave i believe you went i was there you are a very lucky man. I mean, the BBC Radiophonic Workshop is, uh, it, you know, it's kind of legendary, really. And it's, what was really funny for me is just on that video clip is looking up and seeing all those really corny clips from Doctor Who, you know, and all these people, this huge, serious, highbrow event kind of based around the fact that there were these kind of terribly puppety kind of um, aliens kind of hitting each other in a fake way and all that sort of stuff. I thought it was hilarious in a way. Interesting juxtaposition. How was it, though? It was, it was great. It was a whole kind of celebration of, of kind of geekness <laughs> in, a, in a good way. You know, um, you've got these men, Peter Howell, Roger Lim, Paddy Kingsland, who wrote the music for the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and um, Dick Mills, who uh, uh, arranged the Doctor Who theme with uh, 
Dilly Derbyshire, I believe, back in the and the sixties. And um they come on in white coats and the, the whole gig started with Dick Mills playing around with a VCS three and you know, fiddling around with the the uh, the, the, uh, the modulation speed and, and the filter. And, uh, and then the other guys came on, and it was a mixture of, it was a mixture of kind of Yamaha and Roland digital keyboards. Um, and then there was some, I couldn't see from where I was what Roland keyboards, but it kind of, they had the shape of the, the bigger Roland keyboards, like the Juno 60, you know, the kind of, and yeah. the Jupiter, they, they weren't Jupiter 8s, but they're the kind of that bigger sort of Roland, um, you, know, you know, sort of format. Um, and then um, over on the other side of the stage, Mark Ayers, I think he got an ARP 2600 and, and some other um, analog devices because they, they had to tune them up uh, several times during the proceedings. And they played um, classic radiophonic um, tracks. And, and again, I, uh, you know, Rich, and I don't know how, what this means to, uh, to, to American listeners, listeners, but, you know, I mean, you had Doctor Who in the States, didn't you? Pardon me? You had Doctor Who in the, in the U.S.? Does this mean anything to you? No, no, I haven't got the slight. I have to admit, <laughs> I am as clueless as a man can be right now. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, it was a seminal. It was a seminal science fiction series from the nineteen sixties, and 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 then it was brought back a few years ago, and has become one of the most uh, popular TV shows um, for the family. It, it, the music was electronic and was famously the theme tune, the, the, which Nick just played a little bit of, um, has become the kind of the uh, the, the signature of the, uh, the Radiophonic Workshop, if you like. And, and and they did that. They played a kind of like an electronic version of it, and then they did a rock-out version of it. <laughs> and they played some stuff from Hitchhiker and uh, John Cramer's Newsround, and it was just a... The whole evening was just fabulously nostalgic for this age of, of analog keyboards and, and making noises out of nothing. Um, and it was, it was great. It was just really, um, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was thrilling in a kind of a, you know, you could see everybody smiling at the fact that there was there were all these sounds and all these tunes, which some of them were cheesy and some of them were kind of um, really didn't work in the kind of 20th, 21st century. Right. But they, but they felt really good to hear again. So it was a great evening. It really was. Dave Spears, did you, you, did you hear about this? And I guess you would have liked to have gone if you could have made it. Couldn't believe it. I think I heard from you like the day before. I was like, ah, oh, dude, if I'd have known. Uh, it was really badly publicised. Yeah, shame. And the Roundhouse is a great venue as well. So it would have been really good. I mean, looking at the gear, I saw the gear on the website. Arp Odyssey, Cynthia A, EMS, VCS3. MS20, D50, JX3P, right? uh, Vocoder System 100, VP330, DX7s, all sorts of really good stuff. So, yeah, yeah no, I'm really disappointed. It's got, it sort of has the same similar kind of vibe as that uh, Jean-Michel Jarre tour last year, where he kind of toured all the old the old ladies, as he put it, got brought them all out, to, out of retirement and actually fired them up and sort of had that kind of feel. Was, there, was a lot of it actually uh, live, or was most of it... Um, there were bits that, like there were bits where there were there were backing tracks and then because they had live musicians as well they had Andy Pass playing bass you know who was the bass player with Landscape who also wrote the theme to the bill and which gets played twice a week so he'll never have to um, work again and there was a, there was a guy who played percussion for. Um, Pierre Boulet. So it was interesting because when he was playing the Swanee Whistle and, and the Duck, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> kind of, uh, you know, comic in that respect. Ralph Salmons was on drums and he's played for everybody from Westlife to uh, the 15 to 1 theme music. Um, 
and then they had a horn section. So every, the, the, certain tracks would have backing tracks and they'd join in at certain points. But then some things would be entirely live. And, uh, and, and the whole, the, you, you kind of expected them to do the, the last number, which was Doctor Who, with the younger, 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 and then, but then with Peter Howell, who rearranged Doctor Who at the end, at the end of the 80s, playing live over the top. And then as soon as... Oh. Hello? Hello, everybody. Let's face it, we're not going to get a job at the Eurovision, are we? No, perhaps not. <laughs> I don't know well, where. That's funny because when Dave was describing it as being, it can't fail. No, they've only minimized the uh, the likelihood. Is all they've done. You can't. There is no such thing as a situation in which the thing is can definitely is not going to go down. As long as you're running off of some kind of wall outlet or something, you know, any you know, you just never know. You can minimize the chances by great percentages, but you can't make it go away. As we've just demonstrated, well, folks, very sorry about that. Um, the network just went. I looked at the modem, the modem router, and it just had a red light saying no ADSL, nothing. It just kind of completely dead. Where were we? Well, I think we were, you guys were talking about the Radiophonic thing. So Radiophonic Workshop was on the 17th of May at the Roundhouse. The video I put up on, uh, there's a couple of videos I put up on one of the news items on Sonic today. I found it because I couldn't find anything anywhere else. We were actually going to go up and do an interview, um, but it just didn't work out. They, they weren't ready for us, and so we didn't actually. So anyway, um, let's move on to something else then. <laughs> something that we could all participate. Zinoviev. Should we play Zinoviev? Yeah. I love this, cl- this clip. This is uh, yeah. a great clip. When EMS was at its height, we were at the very front of technology, really not just in electronic music, but of all technology. But our studio had never had any support from the government whatsoever. And it seems such a shame, looking back on it, that we were foremost in the world, and yet in the end became famous for rather pathetic little synthesizers. (laughs) <laughs> isn't that a brilliant quote famous quote for rather decade. pathetic little synthesizers what a guy a brilliant uh piece about uh the evolution of peter Zinovia's computer music studio and also the ems and that kind of whole world and it was remarkable how much investment and effort had gone into kind of creating these computer music instruments it sort of transpired that ems synthesizers were sort of created just to fund his his uh, extremely expensive uh, habit of uh, making sound with the pdp slash eight process control machines um but he was obviously a real enthusiast the thing i don't know what did you make of it dave i suspect you really enjoyed this have you seen it before i don't know where it came from no and i want to see everything in its entirety it was really fascinating in fact um Gordon Reed was on there. I recognised him, the sound on sound guy. Okay, and he is a guru of all things analog. And um, yeah, I just want to know. I want to. I want the chance to see it all. I want to know where it came from and everything about it. Yeah, it was great. A great piece. So sad though. I mean, obviously, um, when the EMS went kind of bankrupt, and he had to, they tried to give the music studio to the British government to donate it to kind of a museum. Couldn't do it anyway. They had, and it looks like they decommissioned it really brutally. Sort of hacked it out of his house and stuck it in um, the basement of the National Theatre, where basically it got rained on and was destroyed. And the look on his face when he was describing that it was ruined was just heartbreaking because he put his whole life into it. It was awful. Just horrendous. Oh, horrendous! I just but some brilliant, <laughs> brilliant bits in there, and so typically British, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, so much so. Rich, 
Well, that'll teach me for not getting to the end of the movie because <laughs> I I saw like the first half of the thing before we started, and then uh, and then uh, I hadn't seen the uh, the dour conclusion. But I will. That watch wasn't the, that wasn't the conclusion. It was just passing through. Oh but. well, I'll have to get to that part. But but uh, fascinating guy, fascinating what he was doing. Incredible that he grew it completely as a homebrew business, as he says, without support from anybody, pretty much, and uh, loved their instruments for what they did well mm. and and the ethic that they portrayed and sort of epitomized and that the uh the matrix patch bay was brilliant the colored pins were brilliant there was just so much that they did that was great i uh, know i agree i mean i think it it's clear that they were all i mean because it wasn't just him was it there were other people involved as well um that that kind of clearly took it forward but they were seemed to be more on the actual the commercialization of his uh, they were sort of mini versions of the synthesizers he was building and using in his own computer music studio, which was quite interesting. So he he seems to have been the visionary force behind the whole EMS thing. And it, yeah, it's rather sort of sad when you hear that, that opening statement about the fact that, you know, they were on the cutting edge of technology. And all they could make was pathetic little synthesizers. But that's from a man who's obviously got much greater goals. Just amazing. Amazing. I mean, they ne- they never really got the credit they deserved. I mean, people always assume that the Mini Moog was the first portable synth, but the VCS3, I think, was. Stuff like that, and that's why I say, you know, typically British, underfunded and overbrained. It reminded me a little bit of the, uh, who was the bloke who did the jet, who invented the jet engine and ended up going to us to America? Oh, yeah, Whittle. Whittle, yeah. I mean, it has had exactly the same thing. He was kind of going to the British government, look, invest in this, this is going to be massive, and they just, uh, bah, it's all a bit newfangled, <laughs> we're not interested, and um, look, what, look what happened. If the British, you know, similar sort of thing, really, although I suppose EMS as an industry probably, <laughs> the synthesizer industry as a whole, probably doesn't really kind of compare to the uh, the size of uh, jet air travel, quite. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, it sort of feels feels like they were wronged somehow. They make similar noises sometimes. Well, that's true. <laughs> I'm going to try, uh, I'm just going to try and get uh, Dave Robinson, because I think he might be back at his phone by now. Um, let me see if I can. I had a great, great time on a VCS years ago. Uh, sorry, on a Synthi 100 years ago. Really? Ooh, lucky you. Yeah, except it was my job to get sounds for the since for the opening of a vid uh, for the opening of the synth museum over here and the v- and the synth i100 was the only thing i could just about get a fart noise out of i was hideously embarrassed it's very difficult to get sounds out of ems stuff it's not they weren't really the um the arbiters of kind of workflow and ease of use it was very scientific wasn't it stunning I, I was only kind of redeemed because i think it was Matthias becker who came on to do a piece and uh, he then spent about 20 minutes trying to get it working and he came up with a similar kind of fart noise <laughs> so there's a little bit of relief going on excellent hey listen i just realized i better do an ad because we've uh, we've lost about 20 minutes by uh, by um by the, we lost some network so uh, let's hear it for roland.co.uk um they are one of the show sponsors and we'd like to bring your attention to the vsynth gt patch vote which i've spoken about before uh, it's a brilliant concept actually because what it's done is taken the new operating system of the vsynth gt which is os2 and sort of handed it out to all of the people who are working in the roland planet stores which are kind of sto- roland stores within stores in big music shops across the uk and got them to 
to create their own patches, um, sort of dem- thus demonstrating how great the V-Synth GT is, and indeed it is great, actually. Um, there's about 12 videos from various people. All you have to do is go to roland.co.uk slash V-Synth GT patch vote where you can then vote on your favourite one and your entry will be put into the hat and you may have the chance to win a Boss Micro BR recorder, which are very handy little um, audio recorders with built-in uh, Cosm effects and drum machine and guitar effects, all sorts of things. So head over to roland.co.uk slash vsynthgt patchvote and check out what the vsynth GT operating system 2 is capable of. And once again, thank you very much to Roland.co.uk for the sponsorship. Rich, do you, does the EMS stuff... Um... Yeah, love it. Uh, particularly VS, VCS3 and the little twin, the AKS Synthy. I've so which, want, always wanted a v, uh, EMS Synthy. Always. The AKS Synthy is just a fantastic box that does tons of great stuff. And I used to uh, invite my... When I was studying in Ithaca, I, they had one of these at the Cornell Music uh, Lab. And I used to... Uh, go up there with friends and have them jamming and i used to route them through the uh synthy and play around with it and some reverbs and some things and i I love it i just love playing with it and uh fantastic devices for processing not the greatest keyboard played devices ever created but uh very unique and fascinating audio devices i love them yeah i mean it's it's one that i've always wanted uh, i really would uh, ever since i was a kid i remember seeing the suitcase one just the idea of having it in a suitcase i've all you know and one day i'll get one i don't know they're really expensive now they're like sort of three or four or five grand aren't they for those things i don't think it's ever going to come my way <laughs> i don't suppose anybody remembers the original advertisement that they placed for the aks synthy as being a synthesizer in a box and a suitcase kind of thing and who the endorsee was no do tell it was Ringo Starr. Really? As I recall, I'm almost positive I remember an, a- an early AKS Synthy ad with Ringo Starr in it. <laughs> that is a weird concept. Now, I'd love to be shown I was wrong, but I'm almost positive I didn't invent this in my head and that I saw this. This was uh, when it was first more or less introduced, and I was quite interested in synthesis in the uh, very early 70s. I believe it, it, That was certainly when I became aware of it. They may have developed it earlier, but... Well, uh, anyway, I thoroughly recommend you check out the Peter Zinoviev uh, video. Uh, it's it's great. Yeah. Uh, that came via Matrix Synth, um, who picked it up very quickly, and it was a brilliant uh, a brilliant find. So uh, check it out. Well, let's move on to uh, Sony. Sony, um, obviously, it's, it's quite an interesting story. This because Sony have just um, announced something like what is it one point one point seven two billion dollars in the first quarter of two thousand and nine. Oops. Which kind of seems like quite a lot. It, uh, <laughs> Oops. Yeah, that's kind of quite quite a major loss. I don't, I don't really understand this. Uh, it says that the uh, it lost $1.72 billion in the first quarter of 2009, giving it a net loss of $1 billion for its fiscal year. Well, you know, it's still a lot. But at the brilliant. same time, I saw that they're releasing this new X-Series Walkman, which looked really brilliant. I mean, I really, really want Sony to have a hit again, because it seems like an awfully long time since they have. Have you seen this? The uh, X-Series got an OLED LCD, noise cancelling headphones and some extra audio wizardry to um to revitalize compressed audio it can also record video direct from bravia tvs which may or may not be a good thing it comes 16 gig or 32 gig uh touchscreen wi-fi all of that stuff it looks quite good actually and um people who've had their hands on it do say it does 
<clears throat> I hate to use the uh, the phrase iPod killer. I don't think that'll ever happen. But um, may, might actually be able to nestle into the market and get them get you know get them back on their feet again. I miss a bit of Sony action, and now it just doesn't feel like it feels like almost Apple have taken over where Sony left off for certain things. Mm-hmm. But that's a big loss. Okay. Was it something like I forget the uh, amount of people they were laying off? It was huge, wasn't it? Oh, it's terrible. It's um, yeah. I, th- I think they're laying off sixteen thousand workers, which is just. Well, they're saying they're projecting to lose another one point two billion in the next fiscal year, which would bring it up to three billion across the year and a half, or whatever that they're oh, measuring. Oh God, um, I, I can't imagine the sort of that's how you could sustain anything like that. But if we weren't already uh, completely saturated with the ubiquity of the iPod. Um, I just recently purchased a little home theater Blu-ray surround rig for my new little TV, my new HD TV here at home. And the reason why I bring this up is because the thing has sticking out the front of it, if you like, an iPod dock where I can just sit my iPod in the thing and control it from the unit's remote control and play music into my surround rig. Mm, cool. So it's one level even more of iPod ubiquity. Ubiquity, ubiquity, ubiquity. Thank you. Um, Where third-party manufacturers from all over the world. This is a Korean product, I believe. It's by LG. Um, Are support, and I know Samsung's products are supporting it. And I'm because I've just shopped this sort of world. I'm seeing a lot of these kinds of units and and uh, Blu-ray players supporting this kind of technology. And uh, so. Does Sony have a industry standard connector on the bottom of it? Because now there is an industry standard, for example. Mm. Um, because if it does, you know, in other words, if they can make the case that it interfaces with the rest of your life the same way that, say, an iPod Touch or an iPhone does, uh, then uh, then I'm interested because it does look really nice, and they have a, obviously amazing reputation for innovation and good audio. So I'm quite interested. And at the same time, uh, even more skeptical <laughs> than I might have been a month ago. I like the idea of some noise-canceling headphones built in, because that's going to be useful. I mean, I've always wanted a pair of those. I wonder if they're any good. Yeah, well, Apple will up- upgrade. Their, uh, their, they're going to have to upgrade those headphones at some point. And, uh, but on the other hand, there are a lot of people who love those headphones. Those no, they're crummy. I know, but some people love them, and they're, I think they're afraid to change them. Because Lord knows they should have by now. I've always been interested in pushing the boundaries, as you say, and developing new possibilities, new aesthetic possibilities. But then ultimately, at the end of the day, I want to tell a sonic narrative, make something aesthetic. So I'm trying to make something beautiful, basically. Yeah, so this is one of my first programs. It's called Cloud Generator, and it's a program for granular synthesis. So it generates a cloud of grains, which are grains are short duration, like atoms of sound. Uh, we're going up to 90 grains per second. Lezione numero 11. Lora. Yeah, we can use that. So what we're going to do now is take the sound of a person speaking and cut it into little particles. So we begin to hear just one little piece of it repeated. I'm now going to move through the sound file. Slowly, stretch. 
That was Mr. Curtis Rhodes. Um, who's, there's a three-part documentary on VBS TV, which uh, I've not come across before, about him and um, granular synthesis. And it's it's a really strange kind of mixture uh, of um, sort of popular TV culture and granular synthesis. But... Uh, it's all good. Um, Curtis Rhodes is apparently credited as the first person to implement digital granular synthesis engine. Um, he found, and he also co-founded the Computer Music Association in 1980. I'd never heard of him, actually. It's been something that uh, kind of completely passed me by. And the one thing that I found is um, you know, that that section that we uh, that we just listened to was him talking about the the cloud generator that he'd made, his own software tool. And the, he's talking uh, also about stuff that's going um, right back to, you know, when you had to punch it in on kind of computer cards and wait weeks for it to come back and it was all sounds very difficult to make but the one thing that i did find is i couldn't find any joy or or or, um in any of his compositions i don't know whether it's just me but it didn't seem very musical in a way and composition is perhaps as too strong a word for it but i don't know much about him rich do you know much about him was this sort of thing that you came across when you're doing your music studies i've heard of him um I don't know a lot about him, and I didn't get to watch very much of his three-video set about this. But um, I do recall a time in, in the 70s in which where computer music was essentially based around these sort of techniques and FM kind of synthesis that was being done in, uh, I believe, Stanford by Chowning, and which was later adopted by Yamaha for their keyboard instruments. And I remember that there was this whole sort of uh, derived sort of from music concrete. It was really curious to see what you could do with sounds and how you could sequence them given the analog technologies available. And so this was a really unique thing to be able to do at that time. And mm. it was, it was, it didn't sound like anything you'd ever heard. And so it had significance in that sort of pioneering evolutionary standpoint because today it's so familiar to us that we go well it just sounds like a cd player skipping or whatever (laughs) um no seriously straight up though because there were no samples at the time you weren't thinking like that and you know what it really reminds me of is uh, anybody remember in sonic's trans wave concept where they would give you this evolve this long evolving waveform and allow you to select individual uh cycles along the way to use as bases bases for synthesis that's that's great you could actually modulate the position of the trans wave, the, the position of the the se- selection you've taken within the trans wave, much like he just took his little loopy piece and cycled it across his waveform. Yeah. And to have done that in whatever, the mid-70s or whenever, that's a pretty profound thing to have done. Um, does it remind me of the pastoral symphony? No, not necessarily, but it's a, it's got great... Uh, historical interest to me and i think should not be uh seen as trifle given no i can see that the amount of work that and and the the kind of innovation that's gone i suppose the thing that i find hard to reconcile is the fact that you know he's kind of one of the the most powerful exponents of this granular digital synthesis and has been kind of pioneering it i didn't hear anything that kind of made me want to take notes of more of his stuff and i'm not sure how it how it's influenced current musical uh, electronic music stuff, you know. I mean, it must have done to a degree, obviously, with glitch and that kind of thing. I mean, is that maybe where it where it has um, made its influences? They were certainly drawing comparisons with IDM, weren't they, and glitch stuff? Right. I suppose so. I mean, uh, maybe that's it. But I, 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 I would really like to have seen a little bit more of a timeline and kind of maybe people referring to his work and his uh, the stuff so that I could understand it better because I didn't really get it from those, unfortunately. 
No. My unsustainable reactionary comment for the podcast is flip it on 45, stick a 909 kick drum under there so we can dance to it. Yeah. There is an element of that missing from his work, isn't there? (laughs) But, you know, I understand the whole kind of... uh, Yeah, but... The making, the making of it is, you know, it's kind yeah. of like high art, isn't it? It's the process, really, rather than the result. Would you say that about Morton Sabotnik? Uh, I don't know who that is. <laughs> <laughs> you so don't I probably, so I probably would. <laughs> well, I think that's a good future topic, then, is who is Morton Sabotnik. Okay, well, why don't we? All of this comes from academia and blip and screech school music concrete music concrete on through blip and screech synthesis this is all comes it didn't even get any anywhere near pop culture until abbey road as far as i can recall or maybe you know good vibrations or whatever but but sometime around there and then keith emerson is where it crossed over into any kind of pop culture at all it was all blip and screech before that Ah, okay. And then the first demo records were like the Moog Trio in upstate New York, one of whom was a teacher of mine, by the way. Um, you had Dick Hyman, who did realizations of like Gershwin and sh- on Mini Moog after the Mini Moog came out, which is a few years later still. You know, so I'm saying there was no all of this pop culture. The reason we have this show and the reason you have like friggin' 80s music is because of all this blip and screech academia and where it. Brought, was brought to when it crossed over into the pop culture. Oh, Just from well, yeah. the guy historical perspective there. Well, I think that's it. I mean, this is why I don't really know enough about this, and that's why it kind of seems so distant um, from from where we are now. But, I mean, I can see that it's... That's why I was kind of concerned that there wasn't really an illustration of why we should kind of give a shit, frankly, you know, because right. it seems so disconnected from what in we the do context now. of where we sit today, unless yeah. you understand the context in which it was created, it makes no sense at all. Yeah. There's a whole world of before 1970 out there that, that, that relates very strongly to what all of this stuff has become. And you've got your Buklas and your Moogs and, and this guy and whatever his name is in EMS. And, and there was all these little pockets of individuals hobbying their asses off. You know what I mean? And then yeah, you had yeah. the Columbia, you had Yusachevsky at Columbia School in New York with the computer, much like what What's-His-Name was doing at EMS on his own. But it all came out of Columbia Music School on some level in the late 50s and early 60s, where you had punch cards and the, the, the entire room was like two oscillators and an amplifier <laughs> running on tubes. You know, so there is a huge history that precedes 1970 in this that makes all of this you know, possible, really. It's the wheel that makes the car. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think also though, um, it's it it it's easier to kind of get it when there's just some you know the, the work of Peter Zanovia was 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 still difficult to kind of grasp, but it was it had some melodic content and had this that. And the, the amazing thing with the Zenovia stuff, if you, did you watch it up to the point where they were actually doing concerts at the Royal Festival Hall, and no, they had the, they had this computer on stage and a bloke announcing it, and they kind of uh, they said and the um, the the musicians are now approaching the computer where they will be booting it up and getting it started. From then on, it will be playing this entirely on its on own. its own. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Which which would horrify people at that time. It was brilliant. That's, it's, even today, it's fairly hor- horrific. Or you know, like you know, before Tangerine Dream, you didn't have concerts like that. You know, or or yeah. work or craft work. You didn't have concerts like that. And it was scary to people. People were like, "Well, what happens when 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 the machines start making the art?" And people are still saying the same. Well, that's kind of what they were hope they were trying to do. That's what Zenovius was actually trying to do. He wanted the machines to make the art. He was kind of trying to give it as little input as possible, right? And let it kind of run with it. 
From the standpoint of maximizing the randomness of it and the ease of doing that, given these kinds of processes, that's what they were doing. But I think ultimately they were interested in the way that process interfaced with the human controlling it. I mean, they weren't even able to think like that yet because it would take them three days to make a sound at Columbia, you know, using one of those punch cards. And then they'd have to record it to tape and move on. Yeah, and then and then go to the you know go to the next sound <laughs> does rather does rather sort of stu- stu- um, stultify the creative process really doesn't it it makes it has to be more academic and more scientific because it's kind of like a, it's true experimentation rather than just Montage. messing you're, about you're, you're pasting things together to see what happens mm. it's it's a bit like a bad cook. <laughs> Well, I need to look into it more, but it was, it was new to me because I hadn't heard of him. And also, um, there's a lot of it. And I just think it would, I'd really like to find a, a, a more well-connected and joined together kind of um, documentary about it so that I could sort of maybe see how it influenced the rest of, you know, perhaps more uh, accessible music types. But mm-hmm. interesting guy. So you can check that out on VBS TV. There's three episodes. Um, I think we're going to have to stop because I'm going to have to run away. I'm really sorry that this has been a bit disjointed because we had a, a, for those who you um, who are still listening live and wondering what's going on, why I'm rambling perhaps is uh, because we had a network dropout and the whole show kind of like all the computers in the building just went down and uh, we had to kind of pick up where we left off. So in the final edit, it might be a little bit light. But um, before I go, I better just say um, hello um, to our second show sponsor, assuming they ever come back again after this terrible, <laughs> terrible calamity, <laughs> LootMasters.com, who uh, are l- the number one website and sample CD distributor um, that bring you the most inspirational collections of royalty-free sounds and samples from top producers worldwide. They've been offering us a special free voucher, which gets you uh, 800 megabytes of free loops. Um, and apparently those vouchers are now running out. So get them while you can. You, all you have to do is, in, is email info at loopmasters.com with the subject Sonic State VIP. Email info at loopmasters.com with the subject Sonic State VIP. And there's a few, uh, only a few vouchers left. So um, get them while you can, like I say. Uh, also, um, they'd like to say they've got a new video podcast up on Loop TV, um, which they check with Hope Records, DJ Remixer, Jody Wistonoff from Way Out West. Actually, we did a... Uh, a studio tour with him they they do some they've got some great analog stuff actually those guys uh also they get a peek at the soon released packs from uh ronnie Sai, the new jazz and club the uh, part-time heroes and they also kick off the first of a series of tutorial sessions from focus right and ableton product specialist rob jones and they start with drum pattern manipulation in live eight all this together with their usual roundup the later releases uh this should be available during may june so head over to looptv.net Okay, thank you very much to our podcast uh, participants. Thank you very much to Loopmasters for their continued sponsorship. Uh, you probably have are wondering what happened to Dave Robinson. Well, uh, when the phone lines went down, um, we kind of had about a 15-minute break and we lost him, unfortunately. It was a, a bit of a shame there, but uh, we want to say thank you very much to Dave Robinson from ProSoundNewsEurope.com. Head over there. He's got a great electronic issue, and if he was here, he'd say goodbye, but he's not, unfortunately. So back to our guests who are still able to be with us. Uh, thanks for coming back to us after that. Uh, Dave Spears from G4 Software, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And Rich Hilton, uh, myspace.com forward slash Hiltonius. Thank you for joining me and hanging in there and, and, and waiting for me to come back to you. Thank you for having me, as always. I love it. And uh, hopefully next week won't be quite so difficult because um, the network will be fine. So thanks once again. That was Sonic Talk number 130. And thank you very much for all you guys in the chat room. I've got to run off now and uh, head off to parents' evening. So uh, I'll play you out with a little bit more... Radiophonic Workshop, I think. 
I hope you enjoy this one. And we'll see you all next week, back at the normal time, at 4pm UK time. <laughs>